Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the fourth message in our fall 2020 sermon series, The Politics of Jesus, Following Christ in the American Empire. In this series, we have been giving serious thought to what it looks like to embrace the agenda of Jesus and embody his way of radical love as we seek to navigate this election season by letting the Messiah from Nazareth lead us and show show us what it means to be faithful to God in a time when our nation is being ripped apart by competing political ideologies. And I'm sure you've heard many folks say that we're living in unprecedented times. Maybe you've even said that yourself, but, but that's not entirely true. Yes, it's true that we've never been in this exact moment in history. We've never lived in a time with the kinds of technological and medical advances that we've seen today. We've never had social media and the internet to help fuel division and discord, to propagate fake news and add to narcissistic behavior, our echo chambers and growing mental health issues. And you'd be hard pressed to find a time where we've experienced a pandemic an economic recession, a civil rights movement, and a major presidential election all in the same year. So yes, in that sense, I suppose it's true. But it's also true that this is not the first time that the world has seen major upheaval amid human progress, advances in the face of destabilizing violence, uh, uprisings, conspiracy theories, greed, grave injustices, and political scandals that catch this eventually eventually led to cracks in the concrete of empire from which springs of change burst forth that in turn led to more of the kingdom of God on the earth. In fact, these are the kinds of historical, social, and cultural conditions in which God sent Jesus into the world to split time in two on the human calendar. These are the kinds of days in which the church was born, thrived, and turned the world upside down, as Luke says in the Gospel uh, or his second uh, gospel, the book of Acts. And if we listen and learn from the early church, I think we'll discover what we need to do moving forward. And that's what I would like to do with today's message, a sermon I've entitled, The Patience and Empathy of Exiles. But before I go any further, I want to remind you that if you've missed any sermons in the series, it'd be helpful for you to go back and listen to those uh, since each installment builds, builds upon the other. So at this point, I, want to be, I won't be reviewing what we've already covered. You'll just need to stay up on that uh, for yourself. Also, I want to let you know that next week, I'll, I've invited a special guest to speak into the Politics of Jesus series. His name is Dennis Edwards. Dennis is a pastor, scholar, and professor at North Park Seminary in Chicago. He's written several books. His latest book is on listening and learning from the marginalized. This book is called Might from the Margins. And that is also the title of his message for week five of the seven-week series. So check out Dennis's work on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. And, and join us next Sunday as we listen to how God wants to use marginalized Christians to help the church become more like Christ. And what it means to be the church in a post-Christian America where we follow Jesus 
without the privilege and power that was once afforded to us. All right, let's center our hearts and center our minds with a quick prayer as we open ourselves up to receive God's word today. Father, uh, we are open vessels. Our hearts and minds are open to you. Speak the words of life, for only you have them. Lord, we, we want to be obedient to whatever you call us to do. Our ears are open. Your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I'd like to begin this message with a short movie clip from the 2018 film, Paul, Apostle of Christ. If you're listening to the podcast, no worries. The dialogue is the most important thing, so let me set this scene up for you. The setting is in first century Rome. There's a community of Christians living within the gates of Priscilla and Aquila's house, who are the leaders of the house church there. The Apostle Paul is in prison awaiting his trial before the Emperor Nero, who's already begun persecuting Christians. Nero blames them, particularly Paul, for setting fire to Rome. Luke, the gospel writer and co-worker of Paul, has just been arrested and thrown into prison for trying to speak to Paul in his final days. So what you're about to see is a quarrel between two Christians arguing about what should be done. And one of them wants to fight and violently revolt against Nero in an attempt an attempt to achieve justice by force. But listen carefully to how the leaders respond. Let's watch this together. I understand your pain, Cassius. But Christ spoke of love and peace and you understand patience. nothing. You respond People are dying every day because of us. I've lost my whole family. Family? Yes. You speak of my family? family? You listen to me. I still have no. my family, and I will not put their lives at risk. You coward! You coward! You coward! You coward! You coward! You Keep your voice down! thrown into prison. On conspiracy. What did you say? Luke has been thrown into prison. And I've gathered men willing to storm that prison and free them. To what end, Cassius? Justice! Justice. Think of how foolish Nero will look, having lost the man he accused of burning down Rome. No. If you're caught, they'll come here for us all. Listen to me, exactly. please. Listen to me! We can align ourselves with these powerful families to overthrow Nero. And we can bring peace to Rome if we rule it. Christ asked us to care for the world, not rule it. Listen closely. All of you, listen to me closely. Some of you may want to stay in the city, and some of you may want to leave. But if any of you, any of you, take up arms, you have no place in this community. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. 1 John 2.6. And then I like how the paraphrase Living Bible reads. It says it this way. Anyone who says that they're a Christian should live as Christ did. You can see from the scene that we've just watched and heard, albeit a fictional but accurate representation, that the first Christians were deeply committed to following Jesus, embodying his teachings, and furthering the messianic agenda, believing that Christ revealed to us a radical new way of being human and living within the world. That's what we talked about last week in the message, the inaugural address of Jesus. And you recall that we, we gave attention to Jesus' message in Nazareth and then his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. 
which we said should be seen as the kingdom constitution for those who choose to follow Jesus and join the divine program of recreating the world right in the midst of the present evil age. Again, here's what we said uh, reflects the heart of Jesus' life, message, and ministry. The messianic agenda of Jesus looks like forgiveness of sins and crippling debt, blessings for the spiritually destitute, help for the helpless, poor, and the outsiders, compassion for the brokenhearted, healing physical and spiritual wounds, opening the eyes of the blind, deliverance from spiritual evil and from oppressive systems of abuse and injustice. So you can see how Jesus is concerned both for the physical and spiritual well-being of the world. Rewards, we also said, for the merciful, for those who love their enemies, for peacemakers, and for those persecuted for Jesus' sake. And while the early church was by no means perfect, I mean, just go and read 1 Corinthians to see how whacked out a church can be. Still, the first Christians were, by and large, passionately committed to embracing the words and ways of Jesus. For them, it wasn't about some new set of rules and laws handed down by yet another emperor, as if they had just traded Caesar for Jesus, a kinder leader, who on your best day still wants to dominate you and enslave you to serve his ends. No, instead, these first Christians believed that Jesus was Yahweh in the flesh, the God of the universe, who came to serve, not to be served, the one whom by God created the whole cosmos out of love, a love like no other the world has ever seen or known, and that this God who created them in his very image had come to earth to set the world right, to free them from their captivity to sin and sinful systems, and that through his death on the cross, he defeated the principalities and powers. He removed all obstacles that keep us from knowing God and his life in us, and that by his resurrection, we can know that we will live even though we die, and that someday God will renew and resurrect the entire world. You see, that brought meaning to their lives, hope for tomorrow, and a glorious vision of the future, something the empire could never give them. And that is why they called Jesus their Lord and Savior. That is why they they gave their lives to him and they lived for him. But that's also why they were persecuted. And to give us a glimpse into those first few centuries of the church, what they believed, how they lived, and how they were treated by those Paul called enemies, of the cross of Christ. Let's consider some of the reasons why they became the object of scorn and ridicule, even scapegoated for the decline of Roman society. Despite their message of love and commitment to care for the world, here's why they were despised by the empire. First, Christians lived as aliens and exiles in the Roman world, and they were despised for not swearing and pledging to Caesar, which means that they wouldn't take a ceremonial oath and repeat the phrase, Caesar is Lord. Instead, they said, Jesus is Lord. And you can hear that in Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 9. And, and they hijacked imperial language to communicate the gospel of Jesus. Words like gospel, which Caesar used to speak of the good his administration brings. Faith, Lord, Savior were all words that were used to describe Caesar. And the early Christians said, no, these are words to describe the true king. They were also despised for refusing to glorify violence and war. Christians swore off all violence in their personal lives and their public life, making no distinction between personal enemies and mortal enemies. They wouldn't go to the Colosseum and other local gladiatorial games. They wouldn't join the military and fight in the Roman legions. And they refused to be entertained by violence 
and bloodshed. That ought to make all of us uh, feel a little convicted. And then there's good reason to believe that it was Christian influence that brought an end to the imperial games. Also, they were despised for having ethical, high ethical and moral standards. You see, the gods don't care about those things. They don't care about how husbands treat their wives or, or how, how you know, families treat their children. The gods don't care about you being trustworthy and full of integrity. All they care about is you worshiping them, making sacrifices to them, and giving them credit for the good things that happen in your life. And so without a moral law giver like God, you can imagine how lost they were and how the early church stood out as ethical, moral, and virtuous people. And they were also despised for other things like denouncing lust, greed, and materialism. You see, Christians wouldn't visit prostitutes. They didn't have mistresses or commit adultery. They also remembered what Jesus said about how the door of the kingdom is the smallest for rich people that it's harder for them to join the kingdom because they're drunk on their power and blinded by their privilege. Also, Christians didn't show favoritism to those who had money, and they encouraged sharing all things in common, seeing to it that everyone's needs were met. Christians were also despised because they valued all of life. They valued unborn life and poor folks and women and widows, the elderly, refugees and slaves. They exercised empathy. That is, they put themselves in the shoes of the other. They saw the world through their eyes. They felt their fears and their pain and their need to be loved and cared for as a human being created in the image of God. They lived by Paul's, what, what we call the Magna Carta of Human Freedom, outlined in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, where Paul said, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one. We are all equal in Christ, a new human humanity, a new race, a new world order has come. And then Christians were rejected or, 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 or despised for rejecting the gods of Rome to worship a crucified criminal as the one true God. You know, it may be hard to believe, but Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods of the Roman pantheon. And because of all the many things that Christians refused to believe and participate in, uh, within the empire. And because of this, they, they were seen as subversive, insubordinate, unpatriotic, and a threat to the Roman way of life. And it's easy to see that the early church challenged the so-called Pax Romana, that is, the peace of Rome. And lastly, because of the novelty of the Christian faith and because the early church met in homes and often in secret, all kinds of rumors spread about them. Uh, which made life harder on them. For example, uh, Christians were accused of cannibalism, orgies, magic, and they were secretly, that they were secretly plotting to overthrow the Roman government. Now, if you th think about some of these, you can see how these rumors would have come about, uh, that they ate the body of Christ, they drank his blood, right, the cannibalism, uh, that they called each other brother and sister and gave each other, greeted each other with a holy kiss, that they had love feasts, and so the orgies rumor came about. Magic, because they healed people and performed miracles, and because they used this subversive language that people thought they might be some kind of terrorist cell and organization. But in the concern about the early Christians it grew to such an extent that the empire decided to investigate. We have historical evidence that a man named Pliny the Younger 
a Roman governor in what is now modern-day Turkey, was commissioned by the Emperor Trajan in the early part of the second century to get to the bottom of this growing illegal religion. After some undercover work, uh, Pliny writes a letter to Trajan and reports on what he finds. And here's what Pliny says. He says, The sum of their guilt or error only amounted to this, that on a fixed day they had been accustomed to meet before dawn. That is, they met on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's when Christ was raised from the dead. And, and they did it before the sun came up. Now, you know, I can't help but wonder how many would be committed to worship at 5.30 a.m. on a Monday morning. They were committed, folks. And he, Pliny goes on. He says, though they met this way, and they, they, they sang a hymn among themselves to Christ as though he were a god. I just, I just love that. It just it can sound so strange to us because we're just accustomed to worshiping Jesus together as Christians. But he says they sang a hymn to this Christ as if he were a God. And what hymn is that? Uh, we don't know. And Pliny goes on. And this is what they did to bind themselves. They bound themselves by an oath, but not to some crime. They weren't up to something funny. No funny business here. They weren't trying to commit fraud, theft, adultery, or breach of faith. And not to deny trust money, that is rent, fees, alms, tithes, and so forth, when called upon to deliver. They were people of integrity. Instead, the oath that Pliny refers to is the commitment. That is the oath that they, that they took, if any, was their commitment to worship Christ alone, to obey his teachings, and to love as he loved. Notice, Pliny found no reason to arrest and condemn them based on their character or because of any immediate threat to Rome, certainly not a violent one. And though he did believe they were an absurd superstition and a bunch of weirdos and that their faith was spreading, uh, despite how crazy these ideas were, it was spreading and so that concerned them. So they, all they, they really had on these first Christians and ultimately the only reason they arrested, tortured, and executed them was on the grounds of obstinacy for simple refusal to pledge their loyalty to Caesar and to the empire and for stubbornly following Jesus despite the threat of death. It was their refusal to deny Christ and his messianic agenda that Trajan established the first policy for dealing with Christians. But nevertheless, the church saw explosive growth because their love for Jesus and their care for the world was greater than the power of empire. It was just as Jesus said. Their love proved to the world that they belonged to him and that the kingdom of God was coming. We can see lots of examples of this radical love in those first three centuries of the church. How Christians welcomed everyone to the table regardless of gender, social status, and so forth. How they took up regular collections for widows, the poor, and prisoners. How they took, look at this, abandoned babies, orphans, and unwanted children. E either caring for them until they died or raising them to health and maturity. And, and they also loved those who opposed their faith and values, even to the point of death. And check this out. They cared for the sick during the 15 year of, of the plague, it was called the plague of Cyprian in the middle of the third century. When family members threw their, their own out in the street or fled towns during the great plague of Cyprian, Christians stayed behind to care for them and embody the presence of Jesus and bury them if needed. They were not driven by fear, but love. 
After all, they believed in the one who had conquered death. What was there to be afraid of? Because of this, they were able to offer answers to the problem of evil and suffering, to give meaning to what was happening in the world, and to comfort those who were afraid, to be a non-anxious presence among their neighbors, and to proclaim the living hope they had in the resurrection of Jesus. I like what the sociologist Rodney Stark writes in his book, The Rise of Christianity. He says, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, the chaos, the fear and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. It revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. Into cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. And I think the early Bishop Cyprian said it well when he described early Christianity. He said, we do not speak great things, we live them. You see, brothers and sisters, please hear this. The New Testament isn't nearly concerned with speaking the truth as it is with us living the truth. The early church understood that. While we live in a culture today that says, speak your truth, I much prefer that we all speak the truth, that what we as Christians should be caught up with and captured by is living the truth. Because it's in living the truth that we are called to by Christ. It's It's living the truth that is lacking today. As Brennan Manning once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, saying this, Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. In verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Now, how do we curse people? Well, there are all kinds of ways that we do this right now. Instead of speaking about people that acknowledges their inherent worth and that they are loved by God, we curse them by demonizing them, by, by saying things like the reason they believe that or the reason that they're doing this is because they're evil. They're just stupid and they're evil. They're monsters. Because, of course, we can see their hearts, right? Every single one of them, we can see them all. In American society, folks, has become increasingly bifurcated with everything. We can see this most clearly in our broken two-party system, where it's us versus them. It's black or white. It's friend or enemy. There's no middle ground. There's no nuance, no way to kindly discuss ideas 
and disagree without wanting to cancel or kill someone. And so we say things like, like this, just an example. All Democrats are corrupt. They're all socialists. They're nuts. They hate police officers. They're all fine with killing babies. They want a godless nation full of a bunch of freeloaders. How could any Christian vote for a Democrat? They are destroying the country. Or we say, all Republicans are heartless. They're all racist. They only care about unborn lives, but not poor lives, gay lives, and black lives. They love their guns more than God. How could any Christian vote for a Republican? They are destroying the country. And I'm wondering, when are we going to get off this merry-go-round of insanity? When will we stop with the gross caricatures of entire groups of people? Folks, honestly, and I mean this in love, we need to know that mature, rational, emotionally intelligent, curious, empathetic people don't fall for that way of thinking. You see, wise people don't get sucked into the extremes, into demonizing, misrepresenting, and following the demagogues who did this kind of thing on a regular basis, nor are wise people lured in by the 24-hour cable news networks and talking heads who make a living off this polarizing, irrational, unhelpful nonsense. Moving on. Verse 15, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other and don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Look at that, don't think you know it all. Take up a posture of listening and learning. If you're saying, I don't know how anyone could believe that, well, that's a good indicator that you need to talk to them and listen to them so that you can understand. You've just given yourself away. It's what Jesus would do, right? And if, and if all of us did that, or if the church of all people would do that, we might be able to stop the countdown and get off the scary path that America is on right now. But we have to start blessing and stop cursing. We have to start listening and stop lying to ourselves and to each other. We need to accept this truth, that what we see in our leaders is a reflection of us and our society. It's a reflection of the sickness that is in our world. And whenever we've had enough, Jesus wants us to know that he's there waiting. He's there waiting for us to believe, to believe again that people really do need the Lord, that Jesus is still the answer, and that the lamb is greater than the donkey or the elephant. Verse 17, Paul says, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. In church, Paul is, and we should hear this, echoing the words of Jesus here, saying, Stop the tit for tat. It doesn't work. Verse 19, Dear friends, Paul says, Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. That is, God has a way, his own way, of humbling people and bringing them to their senses. Like in Romans chapter 1, where we see his wrath is sort of built into the system. The New Testament calls it reaping what you sow. And sometimes God will actually give folks over to their sin and let, let it destroy them. Right? They've made their choices. They've made their bed, and they have to lie in it, as the saying goes. In other words, God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. In doing this sort of thing. The church's job isn't to rule or punish like that of the government in Romans 13. Instead, our role is to love. 
Right? We're not the, the moral guardians of the world. We are simply called to live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And let that change the world. You see, the church is to be agents of love, carriers of the cross, not agents of wrath and carriers of the sword. Again, that's what Paul is contrasting in Romans chapter 12 with chapter 13. Verse 20, he said, Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Now, I know this is often misunderstood. Look at verse 20 there. This is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying, Do good and let your acts of love speak for itself. In time, it's going to highlight the righteousness of your acts and the folly of their own. Then they will feel the shame of their sin and hopefully repent. That's what this means. That's what Jesus meant when he told us to turn the other cheek. That we should go out of our way to love those who hate us. I mean, really love them. And it will in time expose the evil being done and increase the likelihood that our enemies will change. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 21, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. As I said, the first Christians were committed to this way of love and empathy for the world, even for those they didn't like or for those who hated them. So much so that their enemies said this about them. The church father and apologist Tertullian recorded this. He said, look, this is what unbelievers said, look how these Christians love one another. But it wasn't just the love and empathy of the first Christians that attracted unbelievers to the early Jesus movement. It was also their patience in the face of oppression, injustice, and suffering. Certainly, if you're going to love people as Jesus loved people, patience is required, right? And the first Christians knew this. That's why Tertullian encouraged Christians to wear their oppressors out with patience. It was their key to growth. It's how the church went from 3,000 at Pentecost to 3 to 5 million by the 4th century. As Alan Kreider says in his book, The Patient Firming of the Early Church, there was no church growth strategy, no reliance upon power or privilege, and no support from politicians that accounts for the growth of the early church. Are you hearing that? They didn't even use their worship services to attract people. That's because the only way you could find a Christian church was to know a Christian and be invited by them to their house church. Even then, there were high demands a person had to meet to attend. And at one point, there was a three-year catechesis process before you could be baptized and take communion and be accepted in the full fellowship of the church. You see, they didn't make it easy or worry about being seeker-friendly. They were solely focused on patiently making disciples who loved like Jesus loved and were true to the Messianic agenda. You know, there's no evidence that there was an evangelism strategy to win new converts and grow their churches through conversions. Yet the church grew. Again, Alan Kreider writes, the Christian's focus was not on saving people or recruiting them. It was on living faithfully in the belief that when people's lives are rehabituated in the way of Jesus, others will want to join them. And they did join them. They did. And the early church attributed their growth to the patient character of God. Looking back through the history of Israel, leading up to Christ, it's easy to see that God has always been a patient, long-suffering, accommodating God. And so it's not surprising that Jesus calls us to a life of patience and empathy. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, I'm not very patient. I don't even pray for patience because it may mean more testing for patience <laughs> and testing of my patience. And I get it. Patience isn't American virtue. It goes against our nature. But you know what? It wasn't a virtue in the Roman Empire either. Patience was the work of the poor. It was the work of the lower class for women, widows, and slaves. It wasn't something to be desired among the rich, elite, and upper class. And you know why, don't you? Because what's the opposite of patience? You say, oh, impatience? Close. Go further. Go deeper. The opposite of patience is power. You see, when we're impatient, it's because we want it now. We want control. Forget discipline, forget waiting on God. But, but if you think about it, doesn't the healthiest growth come with soil, water, sunlight, and time? So what happens when you turn the, the oven up hotter to cut the baking time in half? What happens when you give a child solid food before they have any teeth in their mouth? What happens when you rush your homework so you can hurry and play? What happens when you stop exercising the first month or two because it's too hard and, and the weight isn't coming off fast enough? And what happens when the Jesus way is too slow, arduous, and painful? And, and then someone comes along and says, you know, you don't have to struggle anymore. Don't you want a life where you don't have to be patient and get what you want? I can give this to you. Sounds sinister, right? Sounds like something Satan might say to us, right? Well, in this case, I was actually thinking of what happened to the church in the early 4th century. After years of being patient, as we've seen, in their weakness and frustration, knowing that they were vulnerable and could be used to his advantage, the Emperor Constantine claimed that he had had a conversion and that God was now going to unite the empire in their religion. And in return for their support, he would give them buildings to meet in, tax breaks and benefits, and positions of privilege and power in Roman government. And that's how Christendom, the church militant and triumphant, was born. And for a thousand years, this unholy alliance between the church and the state was, was, was happening where, where we married our faith to state power. And while it's mostly faded in the pages of history at this point, what we've seen in the U.S. over the last several decades have been folks in the church, particularly evangelicals, who are trying to revive what is dying and needs to die for the sake of the gospel. And while it's much more complicated than this, I know, I know that, it's really about power. And Christendom is a refusal, you see, to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow in the Jesus way. It comes as a result of us not wanting to embrace the patience and the empathy of the early church. And here's how one historian put it. Listen to this quote. Christendom tries to control morality through civil means because they have failed to uphold the truth in their own assemblies. They have diluted the gospel and rendered themselves savorless salt. Now they turn to human government to do what the church should have done through Christian influence. Those are hard words 
But words we need to hear, church. Words we need to hear. And then hear these words about who we really are and what we're called to as followers of Jesus. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, But you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the unbelievers so that though they may align you as evildoers, they also may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. My fellow believers, as aliens and exiles, what conduct will unbelievers see from us in the coming days and weeks? Will we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? Or will we give in to the desires of the flesh that war against our soul? Will we resist the evil one and the principalities and powers that seek to exploit our weaknesses and turn us against one another? Or will we allow ourselves to be lured in to the trap of hate, vitriol, and violence? Will we look back to our faithful past and emulate the patience and empathy of those first Christian exiles? Or will we dilute the gospel and render ourselves savorless salt? Church, let's be God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. We can do this by the spirit of Christ in us. We can be the difference the world needs to see in the church today. We only need to commit ourselves to the politics of Jesus and believe in the grassroots work of the spirit in the local church and out to our communities. This is how change happens within the kingdom of God. It begins with you. It begins with us. Finally, to help us apply this message, here are some questions for reflection and our response. I hope that you'll give some thought to these and ask yourself, how does God want me to respond? Number one, reflect on why the early church was despised in the Roman world. And ask yourself this, how does our faith compare? How does our faith compare to what we read about the early church and, and what we discussed today about the early church and why they were despised in the Roman world? Are we thought of in the same way? Number two, reflect on the radical love of the early church. Those examples that we gave. What challenges you? What inspires you? Give that some thought today. And then lastly, number three. Reflect on how the early church impacted society at a grassroots level. In their communities where they lived. And ask yourself this. How might God be calling you and our church to do the same.
What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Do something, would you? As I've been saying in this series, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. For doers are those who get to call themselves followers. May the Spirit guide us in our reflection and empower us in our response for the glory of his name and the furtherance of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to embody the message of Jesus. We want to be patient and empathetic exiles living within the empire today. God, we know that we cannot do this on our own. We need you. But would you spur us on today? Would you give us a kingdom imagination to see the world differently, to see our church differently, to see the church differently, and what we can do together if we are to take your teaching seriously and the example of the early church seriously and seek to live that out where we are today. Holy Spirit, fill us and guide us as we follow in the way of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray.